Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hi, Ruthie. Hi, Lauren. Um, Why don't we start with you telling the listeners out there who you are Mm -hmm. and what your discipline is and uh, the title of your book that's in this featured book series. Okay. My name is Ruthie Yao, and my discipline is American studies. But um, I'm also an oral historian, and, um, and my book fuses those two methods. So my book is an oral history and an ethnography of students, and it's called Students of the Dream, Resegregation in a Southern City. I'm so glad you said that because I want to talk to you about your method. Um, You make a little point of that in the book that it's an oral ethnography, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. that um, poses particular challenges Mm -hmm. as a method. Cool. So we'll come back to that later. Where are we right now? Like, like really specifically, we're in your house, but we're also sort of in the place that's the subject of your book. Right. We are in my house, which is in the city of Atlanta, which is proximate to the place that I study, which is Cobb County. Um, Cobb is a famous or infamous Sunbelt suburb. Uh, and the district that I study, Marietta City Schools, is in Cobb County. It's a kind of a teeny district. Um, situated in a big county district, which was one of the things that attracted me to it. Great. Why don't we talk about what did attract you to Marietta Public Schools? You you went out of state for college, and you went even farther north for graduate school. And why did you come back here? What pulled you back to Atlanta for your dissertation work? Because this book comes out of your dissertation, right? Right, right. So... I went to graduate school knowing that I wanted to study uh, race and power in the South. And I sort of didn't have any ideas about education at that point. Um, Small topics. Right, yeah, the little things. <laughs> Just wanted to break off a little piece. <laughs> and, um, and when I sort of found my rhythm in graduate school, I realized it was around stories about particular places and the way that people shaped life in those places. I thought maybe I was a cultural anthropologist who had an American history bent. I didn't really think I was a historian with an anthropologist bent, uh, mostly because I knew that I wanted to talk to people about their experiences and how they make sense of their pasts and why it matters. Um, I didn't want to do that in a place where I couldn't construe myself as a native. It was important to me to at least have the semblance of belonging um, as a sort of native ethnographer or doing the ethnography of home, as the scholars think about it. I wanted, too, to have a pre-existing network of contacts. That was really important to me. It's hard to get anybody in the South to talk to you candidly about hard things, period. 
uh, but very hard if you seem to be an outsider um, or someone who's excavating a past that they don't have an investment in. Uh, I was raised in Cobb County and educated in Cobb County, and I have an investment in the place and the people. So that meant that I had a network, and that was an important way to start the ball rolling with oral histories um, and with making sure that my web of contacts was big enough and diverse enough that it would be representative in some way. It wouldn't be fully representative, which is a huge limitation, but it would be representative enough for me to do the work I wanted to do. You weren't, though, a native of the place that you were studying or the school that you were studying. So you had a kind of tricky position Mm -hmm. that has its advantages and disadvantages as being an insider and an outsider. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I had this uh, love affair with the local high school that I didn't go to, the public school. Which was called? Which is called Marietta High, and that's the subject of your book. It's mostly the focus of the book. Um, I spend some time talking about the elementary schools because I want to think about how Marietta adopted this marketplace model, this choice-based model for elementary education, which has huge consequences for resegregation in the upper grades. But the high school really, it was where all the romance was to me. Um, Having gone to the private school just a few miles away, um, I knew a lot of people who went to the high school, I knew that it had all the trappings of classic American high school culture, a football team, uh, a really good band. Um, homecoming. Homecoming, yes, yes. All of these rituals, which That's are resonant in the news right now. Right. Homecoming. Thank you, Beyonce. Yeah, thank you, Beyonce, for <laughs> making sure we return our attention to the important things. Um, like Beyonce. <laughs> so we... or my, my experience, we in my private school were cordoned off from, but exposed to what life was like at this huge high school next door. There was also tension around in the city and and in the county around private education generally. It's a county, Cobb County is a county with great schools. Um, It's a wealthy county. So going to private school in Cobb County was a little counterintuitive in some ways. And I think that that also set me up to an to investigate what it was that was so different about my education and the education of these kids around the corner. Um, And it also allowed me to think about what it meant that my education had been so profoundly white and uh, class homogenous too. So those were ways that my questions were formed out of my own experience because my experience was that of a private school student rather than a public school student. Um, It made me legible um, but not too legible. I was studying up what I knew, but not what I knew cellularly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty interesting to me because um, I'm very much like you. I grew up in the suburbs of a big city, uh, a few, a couple big cities. Um, but I went to public school. I started out in private school through second grade, but then did the rest of my education in public schools in affluent suburbs of big Mm -hmm. cities, Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C. and Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, where public schools weren't that different than private schools Mm -hmm. in terms of homogeneous white wealth and resources. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that you could have gone to public school, but that wasn't a thing. 
that white people in Cobb County, that white parents in Cobb County did with their kids. It was certainly a thing that white parents in certain parts of Cobb did. And you can see that in the rankings of the, you can see it in the national rankings, actually. You can see Cobb County's schools. It's particularly excellent schools in the national rankings. And it would have been feasible for my parents to move to one of those parts of the county so that I would have been districted for one of those excellent schools. But that wasn't, that wasn't what they did. That wasn't what they thought was appropriate. My dad had been public, my mom had been public school educated and my dad had been private school educated. And he was of the mind that if you had the resources, your child would be private school educated or you would do absolutely everything you could to secure the best education for your child. An idea that is in certain ways at the heart of my study, an idea that is at the heart of our drama around choice, public education, and opportunity. Right. What constitutes choice? Well, that seems like a good segue to what the argument of your book is. We can dig a little bit into what it is and why it's important to your field and why it's important to the history of children and youth? My argument is centrally um, an argument about integration, but it has a lot of little tendrils. Um, The idea... Beautiful tendrils. (laughs) Thank you. The idea that integration is not, in fact, off the table, even though we've had so many major setbacks in terms of um, judicial decisions and policy changes. Integration is very much uh, who we need to be as a people. And, and the argument that I'm making is that it's incumbent upon us. And, and fundamentally, that it's incumbent upon us as uh, citizens in our districts um, who can run for local school boards, um, who can speak out at our school board meetings, right? That, that this is one of the ways in which we can really be democratic citizens. Schools are, our public schools are the sites where we can most flex those muscles. And integration is one of the ways that we can flex those muscles. I also argue, and this is sort of, again, um, a lens that I take on activism around integrating schools and around the history of desegregation and the trends of resegregation is that children and youth particularly children and youth of color, are at the heart of any, any drive to integrate schools, to, to preserve integration or to integrate districts that have never integrated. Um, that children and youth have always driven what change we needed. That is remarkably true of our past in terms of um, who instigated activism that then produced major desegregation suits. Um, And it's true of our present. Um, Students are enormously active in defining and articulating what a good education is and how deeply local it is. So, So those are sort of, I guess those are iterations of arguments around my main argument, which is that this is not a lost battle. Um, that that Brown is not dead um, and that why would anyone think Brown is dead well I think in light what of, are some of those cases yeah Seattle parents mm-hmm. versus Seattle exactly exactly is the big one that's 07 that's 04? right 07 mm-hmm. yeah that was a major setback because um, it just restate the, mm-hmm. the name of the case right real quick. parents v Seattle um, and it was uh, and Louisville, actually, two cases together, which were argued and decided as parents v. Seattle. Um, 
around whether or not race could be used in admissions decisions. The Parents v. Seattle decision meant that districts needed to rethink the formulas they'd been using to guarantee that they were at least approaching racial balance in their districts. And this is another interesting, um, I think, policy kink, is that a district that is 70% white and 30% black will never have a school, shouldn't in fact have a school that is 50-50, right? That's not representative of the people who live in this district. That doesn't take the onus off folks to make sure that their schools are racially balanced and reflect the composition of their districts. What we see is that districts are drawn to exclude students of color or districts are drawn to encompass too many students of color. So when we think about Parents v. Seattle, we have a very particular lens on race as a factor in school admissions policies and in district policies, but we actually are looking at a way bigger picture, um, which is a picture around the drawing of districts and the way that parents with more resources, more know-how or more connections can lead the fight to determine where the lines are when their schools are redistricted. From my perspective, a lot of what we see in the contemporary moment is both things. It's a product of decisions like Parents v. Seattle, which change the conversation. Um, in, and admittedly, Parents v. Seattle changed the conversation in some good ways because scholars started talking about class differently, right? So mm -hmm. do race and class stand for each other? Uh, how confidently can we use socioeconomic data? Um, not something that you want to tease apart, that class is not a substitute for race. Right, right. Yes. They intersect. Yes. But they are distinct. Yes, right, exactly. Well put. The jurisprudence around uh, race and opportunity, right, is one part of this equation. But then there's also the un, often unattended to activism of white parents who wouldn't say that they're necessarily activists, right, but who have been active in making decisions in their district, whether it's on the school board or whether it's through social connections that reinforce the primacy of their students' advantages. This would be someone like Jill Mudimer. Is that how you say her name? One of the people that you interviewed in your book. Well, and Jill's a really interesting example because in a certain way, Jill's a hero of mine. She's a, someone who really thinks carefully about the relationship between local and national politics. She thinks about why public schools matter. She thinks about why integration matters. She, I think she is a white parent activist, but not in the tradition of the scholars who think about the white kitchen table activists of the desegregation era. In many cases, those were parents who were figuring out how to rework you know, freedom of choice to their most sterling advantage, right? Jill was trying to figure out what had happened to the elementary schools that she knew and how to remake them in a model that would attract parents who are affluent like she is, who are resourced like she is, and who are invested in public education. She is a real kind of unicorn, you know? She really represented to me the kind of commitment that if more parents had it, we would have districts that looked really different, or if more parents had that exact kind of political commitment to leading in preserving integration in local schools and in thinking critically about how to preserve it and, and how to preserve it thinking about class and race and the opportunity of generations to come. So let me back up just real quick. You're looking specifically at 
Marietta within mm-hmm. Cobb County. Right. Jill Mudamar is a parent in a white parent of white children mm-hmm. <laughs> in Cobb County. And you interviewed about a hundred people who had been graduates of Marietta High School. Mm-hmm, right. And you are doing this study as a native, kind of inside, kind of outside. Right. Where you can look in a really granular, I think you said cellular mm-hmm. way, mm-hmm. at how public schools are the site where the future of our democratic values is being played out. Absolutely. And how the demographics of what segregation, desegregation, integration, and resegregation look like in the 1970s when integration was manifesting successfully and now where things are, well, how are things now? Um, A colleague at another institution, an institution in Texas, wrote me and said, I feel like things are really bad right now. And he was talking specifically about recent coverage, which has been robust, of resegregation in the United States. The Civil Rights Project, an amazing research engine, just kind of doubled down on a report that they released, that they've released over and over again, essentially revisiting their findings. But in the mid-2000s, and then in 2010 and in 2012, they've revisited their, their work on resegregation, demonstrating that it is continuing apace, intensifying, and that it is intensifying in places that see themselves as uh, liberal policy hubs. You know, we would think of California and New York. The way that folks conceive of schools um, is so dramatically shaped by notions about individual opportunity and individual choice and our trajectories from school to college and college to work that we don't have, it's not even that we don't have the judicial room or that we don't have models. We do. There are districts doing beautiful work. Brooklyn, the Brooklyn schools are really leading the way in creative integration. Um, But the argument is increasingly that we have no cultural lexicon anymore uh, for what the value of integrated schools is and why any single parent should sacrifice anything for them. It seems like your argument is built on revisiting two premises. One is the idea that what integration was in 1964, you revisit that and sort of say, Mm, one black student in a predominantly white school is not integration. That seems like one piece of your argument. And the other is that integrating schools by bringing white students into predominantly black schools mm-hmm. is that's not the future. The strength of the school is not wooing white families back, mm-hmm. um, affluent white families, into the school so that the, those resources kind of trickle down. Mm-hmm. But to let the schools build on their strengths as they are. So your argument about the fight over democratic values is premised on this revisiting of what integration means, Mm -hmm. that it's representing the demographics of a community and changing this free market discourse about schools, Mm -hmm. right? That students aren't consumers, parents aren't consumers, and the schools don't have brands. So you're absolutely right. I did want to revisit what... Daphne Delk experienced 
Because um, she was originally one of two students. She was. That's right. something I wanted to ask you is what happened to Treble Grady? Yes, right. So we don't know for certain why Travel did not continue with Daphne. I think that they spent the first two weeks of the school year together and Travel withdrew. Daphne's experience is both her own, unique, and very much of the mold of, of these desegregation narratives um, in which some, some of which are violent and horrible, the ones we know well, the Little Rock narrative signally, uh, the Boston narratives also are bloody, but Marietta has a peaceful desegregation narrative and Daphne Delk is at the center of it uh, because she was enormously well-liked. Um, she worked hard to not be a part um, she was seen as funny, charming, smart. You know, this is really the narrative of um, extraordinariness. Extraordinariness. Exceptional. Uh, exactly. And I think for Daphne, she has a beautiful story that she's told more than once around what it meant to sort of be in the crucible, right? And, and it's a narrative about loneliness, you know, for all the fitting in she did. Um, her well, story that's a point you make, right? The, mm-hmm. the problem is that all of the burden of work of integration is put on on fifteen-year-olds, on on young people, and on the integrators, right, right, right. or five-year-olds in the case of Ruby Bridges in New Orleans, right? I mean, there was no humanity. <laughs> we didn't look at this period and think, "Gosh, aren't we proud of doing the right thing?" You know, um, for children and teenagers to be asked to sacrifice their childhoods and their adolescences, to sacrifice all the things that made me think that Marietta High was the most romantic place in the world, right? Um, to be in band or, you know, to be a majorette, right? Friday Night Lights. Yes, yes. That Those sacred, sacred rituals of growing up were um, stolen from Daphne and her entire generation of integrators, all in the name of a gesture. <laughs> I mean, real integration didn't come to places like Mississippi until, you know, the mid-70s, and in some places it didn't come at all. But this is to come back around to your point earlier, Mississippi is no longer um, in the crosshairs, right? I mean, there are southern places that still remain more integrated than places like New Jersey and New York. And I think one of the challenges for us is to is to revisit Nicole Hannah Jones Wolf. Yes, right. An amazing, amazing, brilliant journalist who did more than anyone, from my perspective, other than the people at the Civil Rights Project, more than anyone to get these ideas on the radar of your average American reader um, or parent. But yeah, her, her work on Alabama is tremendous. So you know, so when we think about desegregation stories, what we want to revisit them for is not these narratives of individual heroism. We already know that, right? We want to revisit them to try to figure out what they hide. Not that Daphne hid anything, but rather that, that the celebration of Daphne hides all of the sacrifice around not only her individual experience, but those of the black students who came after her. Because it wasn't as if Daphne walked in the door and then magically the school system was integrated in 1966, right? A generation of students, and by generation in this context, I mean four years, right? The school generation. A generation of students came after her who fought and whose battle is essentially 
um, invisible in the Is archive. Is that the homecoming protest? Right, the homecoming protest. Yeah, I want to hear more about right. that. That generation of students um, fought to figure out what it looked like to really integrate their high school. The homecoming protest was a protest around representation of black students on homecoming court. They were given the opportunity. See, Beyonce isn't just about Beyonce. No, it's not just about Beyonce. Um, and it's definitely about culture and ritual in, in these very ways. Um, but they wanted a representative on the court and they knew because everybody had to vote, every student had to vote for four girls, that the voting strength of the minority of black students would be diluted. So they would not get a black candidate on the court, right? They would only get five, four white women, um, despite their their best efforts. Uh, the, the students of that era staged this protest, claimed that they were going to boycott the homecoming game. There was tension among the athletes as to whether those black athletes who were central to the success of the football team would boycott the homecoming game. Another crucial, that's the subject of your first chapter. Right, football. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, where so many of these dramas are played out among students and among parents and and politicians. Were the players going to boycott the homecoming as well? From my reading of what little there is in the archives and from the interviews I did around this, um, they were to your point that it's hidden, right? Right. They were pressured to by their, you know, black activist classmates, um, but did not, in fact, boycott the game. Um, Colorblind camaraderie, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. This idea, um, what I call colorblind camaraderie, is this idea everyone's that, the same on the field. Yes. Right. Right. That once you're wearing your helmet. Um, you have no race or class or any distinguishing mark. You're just, um, you're one body. And, and so that made, that made homecoming and the homecoming game the perfect site to sort of make these interventions, which were the form of a protest before the game, right? Students wearing sandwich boards and black armbands. This is also a moment when kids in Marietta are importing the rhetoric and imagery from the national black power movement, which no one, I think, really recognized appropriately at the time, the local newspaper was incredibly condescending about the activism of the students um, and certainly wouldn't give it the dignity of being connected to a national freedom struggle. But what did they were, say? Uh, you know, the black students at the high school are agitating, claiming they're being unfairly denied. Agitating. Uh, right. Surely they will um, agree soon to stop this fruitless protest, right? The language is that there was no grounds for their disgruntlement. Um, and there wasn't any recognition that what they were saying, the way that the language they found for this protest, like black is beautiful, was part of a, a much you know, broader, deeper national rhetoric around what it meant to be black in 1970, um, 1969 in this case. So, so the, the protest and the, the centering of the protest around football is one of the ways that we can think about black students negotiating integration over the over the years right that it didn't happen in 64 it happened over and over again every single year for generations right that we're sacrificing as right we started yeah right um and then you know if, if we're tracing that following that thread into the present we see the way that a resegregated institution like marietta high is struggling to figure out an identity for itself um, as the flagship high school in the city to figure out how to hang on to to its 
not just its reputation, that's part of it, but its cultural traction, that it should always mean something to be a Marietta High Blue Devil, and that it should mean something to all the graduates, that they aren't white and affluent, they aren't Latino, they aren't black, they're all across this spectrum. And I think, you know, the, the, that district, that the only district I know intimately, Marietta City Schools, is like so many others. There are no nefarious villains at the, at the base of what's happening in Marietta High. No single policymaker has resegregated its schools, but a whole confluence of cultural and political and economic levers factors um, are producing a resegregated school in which black students and Latino students do not have the opportunity of their white peers. Now, recently... Can I interrupt you for just a second? I just want to be clear about what you mean by Marietta High School being resegregated. Right. So that means majority minority. Right, right, right. right. I think you have called that infelicitous (laughs) phrasing before. So it's majority minority in a predominantly white district. So the school is not represent the, the demographics of the school are not representative of the population of the district of the residents. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, am that's I, interesting. Am I under, you're am close. I, you're close. But the the subtlety there is that the district is in fact just barely majority non-white, just barely. Um, but the schools are much more than barely majority non-white. Um, which is what you're pointing out, right? And what I was tracking, which is that in the 80s and even continuing into the early 90s, there was actual racial balance in the high school. Um, and there was, there was, of course, continuing tension. And I did interviews with students of that era who said that there was virulent racism in the school. But the, there was, I think, still a lot of space for negotiation around what the identity of the school would be. Would it be an integrated institution and how could it be an integrated institution? And I interviewed some amazing students who were working on what that meant for them. Both students were extraordinary in terms of their, you know, grade point average, right? They were classically high achievers and students who were not, you know, who were uh, found themselves to be, you know, had been tracked all the way along as vocational learners or career technical learners. These black students, you know, needed more help than they got in charting out a path in an institution that didn't know and hadn't known how to serve a diversity of student learners and how to have an identity that was everyone at once, which is, a you know, the fundamental dilemma of every American school. But what I was interested in tracking when I was looking at resegregation was the fact that a school that was... 72 or 74 or 76 rising over the years percent Latino and black was a fundamentally different place than a school that was 50 percent black and Latino 10 years before and 35 10 years before that um, when it would have been reflected basically of the city the city's youth. I wanted to to know what that meant for students who were graduates, right, who had been educated at the high school in the 60s and 70s and for students who in you know the early 2000s found themselves in a high school that was both situated in a in a city with a white identity and being educated in a high school that clearly no longer had a white identity although at the time that i was doing my research it had an almost all-white school board and an almost all-white city council those were what i was looking at when i was looking at marietta high But I also was trying to think about how the memory of integration could or would serve 
a new integration era, right? This is at the heart of my inquiry and, and the heart of my hopes, right? If I, if I say that I'm hopeful, it's about the way that people in local places have the capacity to reflect on their history and figure out what worked. There were so many white parents of the desegregation era, meaning the 60s and early 70s, and 80s when, and you referenced this, when desegregation had really kind of settled, right? There was a, a sense that it was no longer politically as flammable and the tip hadn't begun. Black students, the population was slowly growing, but there was still essentially racial balance in the 80s. Meant for those students to reflect on what they'd gotten from this very peculiar American experience of going to a successfully integrated high school and articulating what it meant for them. Did it mean anything for them? Did it make them different citizens? Did it make them different parents? Um, did it make them different voters in the local sense of the term? So those were revelatory interviews for me because every parent was both, right? Every parent was someone who reflected positively and warmly about going to a school that was meaningfully diverse. I hesitate to use that word, but that's what they would say. And, and parents who had had wonderful experiences at that school, but then maybe weren't going to send their students to Marietta High School or were going to take them out right before high school, right? They would have publicly educated students all the way up to ninth grade, and then, then they would figure out what their next move was. Those parents um, were working on this dilemma. What do I want for my child? And, and is there a sacrifice? Do I, am I so unsure about the quality of this school which doesn't have the demographic makeup that it had and doesn't have the curriculum that it had when I went. Is my experience as someone who went to an integrated school so valuable to me? And did it so change me that I want that for my child, even though I'm not sure what's coming? Uncertainty has undone the best intentions of so many families in the city. And so too has an inability to talk about what's happening for understandable reasons. Um, white and black people in the South, I think in some ways, are some of the best people at talking about race. Um, but we're sure as hell not perfect. So I think when we work on something as hard as schools and as important as schools, we still find, I don't know, not the rules of civility, but uh, the pain of history to impinge upon the possibility of being candid. And I think when we ask parents and when we ask families and when we ask citizens to fundamentally examine and maybe even remake the institutions that undergird civic life, that's hard. Structural change. Yes. It's hard. Yes. Right. Structures don't like to change. No, no. They resist. They have their own resistance at every... Adults don't like to change, right? We're the ones in charge to some extent. And I think that the capacity of children and teenagers to understand change, the, the, the fruits of change. I mean, when you're 10, the change that happens to you between being 10 and 11 is pretty radical. <laughs> I think that there's a fundamental capacity to embrace uncertainty when you are a student working your way forward and out and up that we don't have. I mean, people who actually study the psychology of um, risk know about this stuff. But the students that I talk to are the courageous leaders around what schools should do and be. 
that's what gives me hope, right? When I when I maintain that I'm hopeful about the future of integration, I'm hopeful because I've been exposed to so many young people who want to seize the power to remake the institutions that shape their lives. So I want to make sure we talk about some of the challenges you faced in putting your book together. Mm-hmm. But this seems like a good opportunity if you're talking about the courage of young people and that young people give you hope. I would love to hear the story about Franklin Gateway and Marietta's Blue Devil Mayor visiting Yells and this kind of community forum that turned into the students talking to the mayor about what he was doing for them. Right, right. Yeah, thank you so much for asking about this. And this actually intersects with something that I would identify as a challenge, this question about uh, Franklin Gateway. Franklin Gateway came to play this huge role in my life and work, and it plays a big role in local politics. It's a sort of a mundane story about a well-located stretch of apartment complexes kind of falling on bad times, rents dropping, and the flight of capital from, from the area. This stretch of, you know, a mile of apartment complexes essentially came to be at the center of, it was on a road called Franklin right, Road. Right, right, Franklin Road. Yeah, thank you. That's a really important correction. Franklin Road came to be at the center of the conversation around the, quote, failing schools. I use air quotes because no schools fail. <laughs> those of us who have the resources or those of us who believe that schools are important institutions are always in positions to intervene in a discourse around school failure. Um, we watch kids do it all the time, and we as, you know, voters Sorry, and citizens do what? need to do it. Oh, intervene. Stop in- talking about the failure of public schools, mm-hmm. right? The failing, quote-unquote, public schools in Marietta were in this conversation that was sort of swirling in the early and late 2000s, 2000 to 2012, I would say, became focused, this conversation around failing schools in Marietta became focused on Franklin Road, right, which is a stretch of apartment complexes, which had been sort of a place to move in the early 80s, um, and became, as I said, really, you know, fraught with gang activity um, and and a pretty high crime rate. You know, this is a way of talking about communities that is really destructive, what I'm doing right now. I'm describing this place only through its deficits. Um, But I do that because I want it to be clear that this was the way the configuration of the neighborhood made possible the blaming of the students in that neighborhood for the quality of the schools. So the more that neighborhood became a producer of black and Latino students who would move in and out of the system, right? This is the four families in the neighborhood who would come in and leave within a year, within two years, this produced a higher rate of what the system calls transients school systems everywhere track something called transients. Higher rates of students on the move meant that students struggle in school. Then higher rates of African-American and Latino students in the school systems registered for school system leaders as a change that had a direct correlation to, for instance, achievement on the benchmark tests every year. It isn't that there's a fundamental fallacy. It's that imagining that you can blame these students in this mile-long stretch of apartments for an entire complex of interlocking uh, structural disadvantages is so crazy that it's amazing that this argument gained traction, but it did. And the students who grew up on Franklin Road and went to Marietta schools 
were not students who we would say were disconnected from school or or were gang involved, right? It would have been a very small number of those actual students who would have been um, in any way contributing to higher violence in the area, right? They happened to live in a place um, that had faced uh, a lot of challenges over the last two decades. And these students coming to the center of this debate around school quality were also, and this has to do with my research approach as an ethnographer, were also represented in an organization that I came to volunteer with during that time um, called Marietta Yells, Youth Empowerment Through Learning, Leading, and Service. And I was really interested in the way that these students on Franklin Road, who were so vilified, right, it somehow was on their backs uh, that the school Who system was, was struggling. Them, the school board, the, the teachers. I think that we would, you know, some of it we would see in discourse in newspapers or even online, right? If you go to these sites like School Digger, you'll see some of this language. You'll see some real nasty language that isn't befitting of a, a community of people who want to do right by their kids. But yeah, you could see both in the language in the newspaper, local newspaper coverage, you could see in the way, you know, uh, some school leaders, not at that time, I would not the superintendent, I'm mm -hmm. talking about that, but school board members who were trying to reflect on what was happening and what their responsibility was to what was happening in the schools. Why, why were graduation rates lower? Why were test scores dropping? Why was college admission lower? Um, all those indexes that are important. And it was dropping from the 70s and 80s. Well, that they were, I mean, this is, they're really pretty presentist in their analysis, right? They're thinking about the oh, very year year. moment that, exactly. Okay. Yeah, these year-to-year -year indices, yeah. And in, in the case of Franklin Road, the kids there were very traceable. <laughs> I mean, because of the way the districting worked, it was clear that these kids who were districted to two specific elementary schools, which were struggling, these two elementary schools were struggling too, that these kids came into the system and from the perspective, you know, of, I guess, the, you know, analysis of decision makers in Marietta, the presence of students who uh, were transient and who came, you know, from poor households, that was a destabilizing presence from the perspective of, of white decision makers. So Franklin Road acquires a kind of infamy. And this is this is in the period, and, and I spent a lot of time on this, and I spent a lot of time on it as a person who cared about the community, and I spent a lot of time on it as an ethnographer trying to sort out why people did the things they did, why they really did them, right? Not what they said, but what they felt, and how the creation of a narrative around Franklin Road served other ends, um, and what impact it had on the students who lived there. So the way that I did that was to become involved in this organization, Marietta Yells, um, and also to trace the development of, and I'm kind of in the weeds, but I promise I'm gonna get out of them, um, the development of a bond referendum, which was intended to totally remake Franklin Road into what is now Franklin Gateway. Um, I can't overstate the difference between the Franklin Gateway of today and the Franklin Road of 2012. In 2012, when I was really involved with Yells and, and on Franklin Road a lot, students were trying to figure out what was gonna happen politically to their homes, to their neighborhood. It seemed like momentum was building for this bond referendum, which in fact passed in 2016. Um, and, and the results of the referendum, the intent of the referendum was very clear that a um, colleague of mine shared with me 
a list of apartment complexes and the students, the, the makeup of school-age students in them and where those students went to elementary school. So it became clear that the apartment complexes that would be targeted as the first the first ones to be raised in the redevelopment process, right? This is a multi-million dollar bond. So the money is going to go toward getting rid of these apartment complexes. It became clear that some of that rationale was how many children were in those complexes and how many children were going to go to the school system. And from the perspective of the school leaders, we're going to have ostensibly these negative impacts on district outcomes broadly. And that's the blaming of the students. Exactly, exactly. And for me, the very clear, one of the very clear drivers of the redevelopment process. I mean, there was healthy, healthy, robust dialogue at community meetings around this time because it was clear to everyone on Franklin Road what was going on um, and clear to the folks who were advocates of vulnerable students in the city that this was a targeted approach to particular students um, that had the sort of byproducts, the positive byproducts of creating, uh, you know, writable vacant space for new tenants like Atlanta United. Atlanta's uh, soccer team, which won the national championship last year and has enjoyed a lot of attention, Atlanta's soccer team has its corporate headquarters and practice fields on what is now Franklin Gateway. And I can tell you that the students of Franklin Road are not swimming in the lavish attention of Atlanta United, nor are they swimming in the attention of Home Depot or Ikea or any of the new tenants on Franklin Gateway. So what we see in the transformation of this corridor is not just an argument about the role of capital in shaping the destinies of vulnerable kids, or the role of a market discourse around shaping those destinies. But we also see, if we look more granularly, a really amazing site of resistance, which is what you made reference to, which I'm so grateful for. Because in a beautiful assertion of their, not only sense of dignity about their home places, but an assertion of the importance of their voices, the students of Franklin Road who were involved in Marietta Yells invited the mayor to have a mayoral forum with them And this was around 2012, 2013? This was actually after the passage of the redevelopment bond. So I wrote about this in the epilogue uh, because it all sort of unfurled at once, tumbled down into the newspapers and and into, uh, into city council's process around deciding what the name of Franklin Road would be. On the surface, the students of Franklin Road were arguing that Franklin needed to stay in the name because it was part of their community's identity. I think that the name that had been proposed was something like Gateway Corridor, something really bland. Um, And the students and community members of Franklin Road invited the mayor down to talk about what the name change meant. But they also invited him to talk about what redevelopment meant, why he was a champion of redevelopment, and what he thought it was going to do for them or to them. And they took him to task. There were student moderators. They had written their own questions. They had carefully practiced what it would be like to talk to the mayor, who had never come to Franklin Road before. Um, But he was a blue devil. He was a blue devil, yes. Which is the mascot of Marietta High School, the subject of your book. Right, right, yes. The mayor um, was a Marietta High graduate and a great interviewee, actually. He was generous with his time um, and very reflective about what Marietta High meant to him. And when he came to Franklin Road, um, he treated the students with kindness and respect, and he seemed to listen to what they felt was important about maintaining 
Franklin in the name. And he advocated for that. I think that those students... So the redevelopment happened. The redevelopment happened. But it is Franklin Gateway. It is indeed. It is indeed. And I think... And that's a victory. And the students are proud of that. I think those students would have declared that a victory. Exactly. Exactly. Um, It's a small thing, but it's a big thing, too. Were any of them displaced by the redevelopment? The students at that particular forum? Yeah, that's a great point. Sure. Um, I haven't looked at what data the organization, what data Yells keeps around the kids who graduated that year. Um, some of them moved on because they move on, right? Um, but several of those families have left Franklin Gateway because rent has risen dramatically in the last four years. Um, so yeah, you know, there are some kids who've been with Yells all the way along and their families are there. They're anchors in the community, which is beautiful. Um, but those are families who've absorbed rising rent costs and, uh, and have stuck it out nonetheless. It hasn't been easy to stay on Franklin Road and to assert that it's their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So some chose to leave and some chose to stay. Right, exactly, exactly. Oh, and a challenge. This is what I was hoping to come back around to. A challenge for me in writing the book, and it's connected to being an ethnographer, is that I think a fundamental tension when you write about something you care about is what the story will do for the people in it. And I don't know. I don't know what this story will do for the people in it um, about whom I care a great deal. And I, I care about all the people in the story. And I regret ever misrepresenting any person who gave their time to me and offered their opinions to me. I think every writer has an agenda and consciously or unconsciously, we deploy the interviews we've collected and the data that we've gathered um, in the service of our argument. And I did that. And there are white interviewees and perhaps black interviewees. I haven't heard from any black interviewees or Latino interviewees, but there are white interviewees who have said to me, I don't think that I was represented accurately. And that's a heartbreak to me. I wanted more than anything to feel that I had told everyone's story, at least a little, right? And not told it because it served me, but told it because it is sacred, um, because it has something to tell us all and, and offers us something to learn about, as I said earlier, why people do the things they do with regard to the institutions that shape their lives. That's the challenge of being an ethnographer and an oral historian is people entrust their stories to you and it's a big deal. You know that very, very well. And I think we can say all along that our intentions define our result, but they don't. Our result defines our result. And I have and pain and regret about is that. constantly changing. Yes, right, right, right. right. History is... Um, a discipline of changing results. Exactly. That's exactly beautifully put. And and the conversation I most recently had about the book was very encouraging. It was with a historian, a local historian, or excuse me, a historian of this local place, Cobb County, Tom Scott, who was a mentor to me in the writing of the book and has meant an enormous amount to me as a, as a mentor of scholarship with integrity. He invited me to talk to a group of folks who are reimagining the headquarters of Marietta City Schools on the site of Lemon Street High School, which I didn't mention. I, w- I wanted to come back around to that because in talking about the way that you're revisiting what integration meant in 1954, 1964, 1954 being the year of Brown, of the Brown decision, but 1964 being the year that Daphne Delk integrates Marietta High School. Um, 
what you're talking about on Franklin Road and the community's investment in the school has to do with the way that the closing of schools in black communities in the era of desegregation had profound consequences on the way schools were forums, were, were, were linchpins for their community. Exactly. That in some ways, Marriott High School continues to have that identity, right? As, yep. You know, it's important to be a blue devil, but that the people who go to that school aren't, you know, down the street, necessarily down the street from that school. Right, yeah. That's such a critical... Side and the analysis. closing of Lemon Street, you yes. were saying, was right. Lemon Street was the black high school, right? And right. that whose football team won the state championship in yes. 1966. Mm-hmm. But then, when Marietta High School integrated, or then um, the football team in 1967, that part of that generation following Daphne Dell, mm-hmm. Marietta High School won. Mm-hmm. The state championship. Yes, yes. And those two banners are on the Northcutt Stadium. Right, yes. To this day. It's a point of great pride. Right. The stadium had a facelift, and I wonder (laughs) where the banners are now. A recent, very recent facelift, but forever those banners hung commemorating those two victories, as you just said, and commemorating um, and holding there, the memory of this all-black high school, um, which had been, and this is a narrative in every southern town where there were enough black students to constitute a classroom of kids, right? This narrative of the black high school in the segregated era and the incredible importance of that institution to these segregated communities. Um, Lemon Street was one of those places, um, an amazing school, uh, and the depth and richness of the community that it fostered is alive in the graduates that I talked to for for this book and alive in the oral histories that other people have done about Lemon Street. Marietteans know what Lemon Street is. Um, Even white Marietteans know what Lemon Street is. And black Marietteans hold sacred the memory of Lemon Street. But there was no, there what had not been, from my perspective at least, a public reckoning for the closure of Lemon Street in the desegregation era. There is a committee of folks who are trying to right that wrong to the extent possible by creating an architecturally similar building to house Marietta City Schools headquarters on the site of the high school. Um, the building actually, the, my understanding is that they're negotiating whether or not it's possible to preserve parts of the structure, which are still in situ, um, or whether there'll need to be a new building. But the idea is that the headquarters will look exactly like Lemon Street did to Daphne, right, in 1962. Um, and that's a very powerful memory work in place. And and the scholar I was referencing, Dr. Scott, um, reached out to me to say that he had recommended my book to the community of people who are working on this, many of whom know all of these players and I think probably will find the history they already know in the book. But the fact that it's that it could be part but of a conversation. that's part of what you were saying that, uh, let me pull this out here. Um, you, you said this thing at the end of your introduction that despite the groundbreaking work of a growing number of researchers, it has taken too long for the scholarly establishment to acknowledge the cost of desegregation to black communities. 
I think that's what you're getting at, right? The closing of Lemon Street High School was a great cost yes. in the service of an ostensible integration that you are saying right. is not exactly integration right? in our evolving sense of what that, in our, in our evolving history of what that means. Right, um, right. And so I think your book is for that establishment <laughs> yes. that is that is being too slow to respond. Sure. Right? So... Yes. Not the people who are building this Lemon Street replica or homage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. The, the way that we remember and forget has enormous consequences for the policy that we make and the way that we see possibility in integration. I think that a Lemon Street memorial, a building that evokes that past in a literally concrete way, is a beautiful insistence upon the importance of those stories to a more just future, right? To educational equity down the road. Lemon Street High of, you know, 1964 has everything to do with Marietta High of 2019. And, and you know, we, we have always the capacity to use our stories well. It's incumbent upon us to figure out how to do that collective work carefully and and to do it in time, right? To do it in time. Um, and it's this little example, but it's also a big example that the bulldozers hadn't quite closed their grip on, on the Lemon Street edifice. And it occurred to a group of people, the superintendent of the city schools among them, whom I admire a great deal, he's excellent, um, said, this is important. This history has a direction to show us. It has a, it has a legacy that, with implications for what it means for a, a mostly black and Latino high school to be exactly the vibrant, um, hallowed space that it has been for generations. That seems like a really good place to stop. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you, Ruthie. I could ask you a million more questions, but I'm hoping that you know your book will do its work and more people will ask you all the questions that I didn't get to ask you today. Thank so, you. Thanks for your work. Thank you for your time and for reading. <laughs> we'll talk soon. Yes. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.